Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. everyone and welcome back to She Dynasty. This week I have Alex Friedman, the co-founder of Lola and the managing director partner at BCG joining me. Lola is the first lifelong brand for reproductive health, offering products that range from your first period to your last hot flash, not to mention the goodies they provide in the sexual wellness space. Now she is the director and partner at the global consulting firm BCG and I can't wait to hear what she's working on. Hi, Alex. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. I am super excited to have you on She Dynasty. You know, I really have taken a look at everything you've done and all you've accomplished. And, you know, I'm just going to like put it like to its simplest form. You know, I look at, you know, everything that's happened with Lola and this incredible brand. And, you know, one of the things that I really want to kind of get to the heart of is, um, you know, you took on something pretty massive, you know, you and your and your partner when you started this. And I just think it's so big and brave. And I just want to, you know, dig in on that because there are so many people that have great ideas and categories, but you guys took on something really big. Um, so very interested to kind of hear about, um, you know, how you tackle something so crazy and, you know, something that just feels like a behemoth. But before we get to that, you know, She Dynasty is so much about, you know, your journey. And I just want to touch a little bit on growing, you know, you growing up and obviously, you you know, you had an entrepreneurial spirit in you. And, you know, I love for people to start to recognize at a younger, a young age, if entrepreneurialism is right for them. So tell us a little bit about your childhood and what were the first kind of sparks of like maybe Maybe you would be a a big ideas person someday. Well, thank you for saying all those very kind things. I grew up in New York City and specifically on the Upper West Side of Manhattan with my parents and my younger sister. And I would say I had a pretty typical childhood. You know, I played sports. I liked arts and crafts. I loved school. I had friends. I think I did grow up in a household where I was told I could do anything or be anything. That wasn't necessarily the environment that I think my mom had, you know, grown up in in the 50s and 60s as a woman and wanted for her two daughters to know that they could aspire to whatever they wanted to be. So that's definitely something that I remember about childhood. You know, I went to a pretty rigorous high school. It was very competitive. I loved learning. When I got to college, 9-11 happened right after I arrived and as I was picking a major. So I majored in international relations just to really understand what was going on in the world around me. And towards the end of college, developed an interest in business and ended up going into consulting after school. And I think that was really probably the spark of where my current career came from and how I got interested in a lot of different industries. Right. When you, so when you were a little girl, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an artist. I thought I was the most advanced cartoonist the world had ever seen. And I spent a lot of time drawing. Awesome. Are you still drawing? No, I do it all still. I still take handwritten notes and sometimes catch myself drawing things in the margins. I love that. You mentioned that when you were growing up, your parents gave you a few shares of stock. So tell me a little bit about that, what it meant to you and what, you know, what became of it? 
Sure. We had financial education early in my family. We were given a very small allowance. I can't remember at what age that started, but it was very important to my parents that my sister and I each have, you know, a dollar a week and start to save up and understand the value of money and buy things for ourselves. And then at some point when we got older, maybe in junior high or a little bit later, my parents gave us each a few shares of Wrigley stock. We really liked Wrigley gum and it felt like something that would be a fun learning experience that also we would enjoy. And Wrigley happened to be a stock that also sell, sent Christmas presents out to all of their shareholders. So every year we'd get a box of gum. But what really happened was that every day we would open the newspaper, try to find the page that had the stock value and track it, which is probably not something your average 13 year old was doing. So really it was a trick. So do you still have that stock? No, I sold it at some point after it doubled and then was worth a lot more. But I wish I still had it because it would be so fun to own that same stock for this long. Awesome. Also understand, you know, you were very involved in sports. And one of the significant moments you talked about was spending hours pitching softball against a wall in high school. So I'm dying to know why this was such a significant moment for you. So I loved playing baseball growing up. I, I played little league as a kid. And I was one of two girls on the team always. It was almost all boys in the 80s and 90s and got quite good and loved it and played softball in high school too. And when I decided I wanted to be a pitcher and I was transitioning from baseball to softball, it took a lot of practice, I think, to really get to know the bigger ball and learn how to pitch windmill. I even went for a week to softball pitching camp. And I spent a lot of time working on this, but you know, in Manhattan, it's not like I had a lot of fields to go to and I didn't really have anyone to throw to. And there was this little building structure behind our apartment building. And I would go down there every day and throw, you know, 40 mile an hour windmill pitches against this wall for hours just to try to improve. So was it just about kind of the focus and just trying to get as good as you could and just kind of the repetition of just kind of upping your game? Is that kind of the lesson you took from that? Yeah, the lesson was just you really have to work hard if you want something and other people you know, were better than I was and I wanted to become the best pitcher. And so I had to really put in the time and it wasn't glamorous and it wasn't social and sometimes it wasn't fun. Right. It's interesting. Moving kind of forward, obviously, you went to two incredible schools, Dartmouth and then Wharton for your master's. I love finding what I, you know, call patterns amongst, you know, women who I interview on She Dynasty and, you know, edu you know, having an, an incredible education is just such a huge, huge part of it. And, you know, it, it makes me wonder, you know, does everyone who graduates, you know, from an Ivy League, from a school from Wharton, just you know, come up with this amazing business idea and then end up just kind of crushing it. Is that a thing or is it is it rare in your mind? Well, I think the schools attract people who are already in like either a network that they could benefit from to launch a business or it's an environment where you could find co-founders easily. So I think there are a lot of advantages and it's not just a regular group of people. Maybe when you get there, it's a lot of people who already have advantages and ideas. Um, but I, I will say I was impressed by how many of the people I met at Wharton ended up starting successful companies. They say, obviously, being around like-minded people, you know, makes you kind of level up. Um, obviously, it's a huge advantage if you're someone who is a big ideas person, having people around you that kind of think the same way. It's like almost like you, you want to, 
you know, you want to make sure you're right there. So I'm just super curious. Um, was your partner someone that you met at school? Was that someone you actually met there? No, we were actually introduced by our husbands who at the time were our boyfriends and who had worked together in other ways. Awesome. And then do you find that a lot of the people that you met at college are still people that kind of help you in your career and people that you still kind of reach out to that also have found some great success? Yes. I, my friends from college, I think have more diverse interests than my friends from business school. Obviously my friends from business school are all in business today from college. They're all doing a lot of different things, you know, jewelry design, consulting in different ways, meditation, like really so many different career paths. And we're all still very close, very good friends. And I think we all help each other out career-wise, but it's a little bit different from the business school crowd where everybody is in a position to help each other all the time. I love it. And when you were, when you were in grad school, did you think you would ever kind of start your own company or did you think at that point you'd be working for someone? I had no idea, but if I were a betting person, I would have bet no. It wasn't my intention to start a company. Yeah. See, I, I love hearing that because I just love how like life can just take you in a completely, completely different direction. Okay, great. So let's talk about the spark for Lola, how this came to be. Again, you took on something so big and I can't wait to hear how, this, how that even came to be. Well, I love how you talk about taking on something so big because the vision is big, right? We wanted to build a platform for women that enabled them to have ingredient transparent products, have content community, everything they needed end to end in reproductive health. But you have to kind of bring it back from the vision and think about what are you actually launching in market? And that was organic cotton tampons and a subscription service. And it was very simple at the beginning. And we knew we wanted to build from something small to something very big, but first you have to prove out something small. And I think the spark for us was realizing that women didn't know what was in their products. We as consumers were shocked when we realized the side of the box that ingredients may contain. And when we tried to dig in further and do research, we couldn't figure out what, pro you know, what ingredients were in the mainstream brands. And we also realized the FDA underregulated this category and didn't require the big brands to dispose ingredients. So they didn't. And as consumers, that didn't sit right with us because we knew what was in our food and our shampoo and everything else that went on and in our bodies. Why not this? So you call it ingredient transparency. I thought that was really interesting. Is that something, a term that you coined? I don't think it's a term that we coined, but it's something that we noticed in every other category was an established way of interacting with consumers. And because this category, you know, tampons had so much stigma, nobody was talking about it. And therefore the brands weren't held to the same standards. So interesting. So you, you're saying that shampoos need to list their ingredients, but something that you actually like insert inside your body did not need that same regulation. Yeah. And it's, you know, th the thing about it that was crazy is that tampons are actually a medical device. So they're highly regulated in a lot of ways, but ingredients disclosure wasn't one of them. And, you know, there are a lot of different reasons for that over time, but a very significant one is that no one was looking out for female consumers and reproductive health. So is that, so is that the case still, is there still no transparency or has anything that you have done kind of forced uh, larger companies to maybe start a different conversation? Just curious if there was any impact or repercussion for them when you kind of started this conversation. 
Sure. So, you know, the idea really was rooted in activism and we took a commercial approach to it and we started a business to change an industry. And in good news, there have been changes over the last almost decade since we launched. Um, something that happened right after we launched is that a lot of other emerging brands saw what we were doing and did something similar. So we had a relatively large competitor set making a lot of noise in this category, which attracted press and influencers and a big storyline here. And so the big brands started to notice as we started to get bigger and bigger, and they started to change they the way that they talked about the category too. And some regulation followed. In the United States, it's regulated on a state-by-state -state basis. So for example, when one state changes the rule or the law, the big brands have to change the way that they disclose ingredients. And so that has started to happen in the United States. And, you know, because that happened in New York, you know, it's too hard for large consumer packaged goods companies to manufacture different packaging for different geographies. So once change starts happening, they start changing. So there has been more significant ingredients disclosure over the last few years. Going back to what we were talking about before, was there ever a moment where you're like, okay, we're starting this company and yes, obviously you had a very specific mission and vision of what you were trying to do. But at the same time, it's like, you're going up against companies like Playtex, you know, and just these giant companies, like, isn't that intimidating? And how do you get over that? How do you just like move forward and like think I can like take on something that already has such a stronghold in the world? You're really getting me back in the 2014 mindset right now. My co-founder Jordana and I often joked in the early days, like you have to be really naive to start a company like this. You have to not realize how hard it will be to compete against them because if you knew you probably wouldn't be doing what you're doing. We probably just didn't realize. We knew that consumers cared and wanted change and that we didn't know if we could start a company because we never had done it before, but we decided that we were going to. And so we decided to kind of just take it every day and every week, you know, one at a time and see, could we get some, you know, evangelism around this? Could we start a conversation? Could we get a hundred customers? Could we get 200 customers? Like, and just built piecemeal. And I think we're optimistic and naive and, it, you know, it was hard, but it was fun and exciting. And we just put one foot in front of the other and did it. And I think we didn't fully realize who we were up against, maybe until more the middle of the journey, when we were trying to get great shelf space and retailers or, you know, deploying real marketing budgets online, and we're truly competing head to head. I love this so much. I relate to it. I remember early in my career, I didn't have any mentors or any, and no one was guiding me on what to do. And I went to a school out here in Los Angeles called Art Center and straight, straight out of school, decided to start my own advertising agency. And everybody's like, what are you doing? Why you don't, that's not what you do. You go get a job. And I was like, why would I get a job? I just graduated from college. I'm going to start a company. And I think my naiveness is what made it work. And so I think the I just relate to that so much because sometimes when you're, you don't know what to be scared of or you don't know what you're doing, it just gives you this feeling of bravery that you don't even know you have. And sometimes it just works out. So I just don't want people listening to like underestimate, like you don't have to be an expert at something. And I think that what is really interesting about what you've done is you took on an industry or, you know, a topic that has been done the same way for so, so many years. 
and you change the conversation. So it forced people to kind of like be like, wait, what's happening over there? And, you know, another company that did that a few years back that I was I just remember when I saw the ad just being like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. Is that company Billy Razors? Do you remember? Do you know who they are? Yeah, Yeah, I remember when they first came out and all of a sudden they were showing all of these ads with like all these hair on women's bodies and there had never been an ad with where you show the hair it was always like with you know with the um the you know all the the razors you always show it perfectly you know primed and quaffed at the end but they just took it on a different way which is similar to what you did and what it did was it forced people to start to have a different conversation and then what you do and whether we realize it or not is you're starting to shake that you start to shake the confidence of the big brands and companies because they're not ready for these conversations they're just not and so they have no choice but to then like figure out how to react or deal with you or kind of change what they're doing exactly i remember we made we started making founder videos in probably 2016 when we were actively putting out content on Facebook, when we were building the brand in the early stages. And I remember we made this video. I can still hear Jordana's voice as she was recording it. She she said, what is with all this blue liquid? And you can kind of imagine those old pad commercials where they're pouring blue liquid on a pad to show how absorbent it is. Yes. And like, not acknowledging that it's actually blood that goes on the path. (laughs) And we did start to kind of poke fun at the big companies because some of the things that were in those old ads made no sense. Yeah, you were also starting, you know, conversations around a topic that had a lot of stigma and secrecy around it. You know, I think obviously people, you know, today are more comfortable with more honest conversations. But again, I think it's really brave to just like hit that head on because maybe back then, you know, there was a way we were taught to talk about it and you guys talked about it in a different way, which I think is what's so special about what you've done. Thank you. It was inspiring to meet all of, you know, our early consumers before we launched, we did a series of 10 or 15 focus groups where we would get together and ask women, what, you know, what are you missing in this category? What products you use today? What's your first period story? And it was the first time that most people we knew and in our broader network had ever even talked about those things. So opening up the conversation has, has been really powerful here. For sure. So, you know, a lot of people think starting a company and and building a company that's been as successful as yours is like super fun and it's all fun and games. But I think anyone who's an entrepreneur or business owner understands that that is not the case. So part of what I like to talk about, just so people understand, is, you know, there are a lot of snags that happen. Um, You talked about one of your snags being when you were looking to get funding. You were called a wantrepreneur during your first fundraise. Tell us what that means and what happened there. Sure. So when we decided to start this company, we did all the things early founders would do, right? We talked to consumers and kind of validated the idea and that there was interest in it. We figured out how would we build a website? You know, how would we develop a brand? How would we source products? The very early basics and Another thing on the list was, okay, how will we fund this? And we realized very early on that we would need to raise external capital and we could raise very little, you know, medium amount or try and kind of swing for the fences. And we decided we wanted to keep it relatively small. Part of that was, I think we thought we could launch a business for much less than we actually needed. 
And part of it was that we didn't necessarily feel comfortable asking people for capital to fund our company. So, you know, your first fundraise is a little bit intimidating and very new. And as we started networking and trying to have conversations with professional investors or high net worth individuals, what we started to learn was the art of telling our story and kind of how to interest people and how to raise money. But I remember in one of the first conversations, somebody called us entrepreneurs, which basically meant people who want to be entrepreneurs, but don't have a track record of it yet. It kind of made us laugh to get attacked that way so early on in fundraising is, you know, people who were trying to be brave and taking this big leap and wanted to change the industry. So I think we learned very early on that, we were going to get positive feedback. We were going to get negative feedback. We were going to get no feedback. And we kind of just had to pick and choose what to listen to as we built. Awesome. I mean, you almost need to reclaim that word and make it a positive. I don't see any issue with being a entrepreneur. Isn't that the point? Right. Like, right. I, I don't even, I don't even understand the issue. I think that's a great word. We should also, we should trademark it and like almost start like a society or an organization of entrepreneurs. <laughs> I know it's so funny because also at that time, it's not like we were calling ourselves entrepreneurs. We were just two people trying to start this little company. <laughs> totally. So when you had the idea, did you actually make a prototype or did you just have an idea and create a deck and then just, you know, start to f- figure out how to go talk to people about the idea to fund it? How does that work? So we knew we wanted to bring the best product we could to our consumers. And so we started researching and getting to know the suppliers of tampons globally. And we ended up bringing a prototype from Europe to the U.S. to start testing with consumers. It was a proven product in Europe. Got it. So you weren't starting from scratch. You had found something that was working in another country and you figured out how to make it relevant here in the U.S.? Yes, we we had a vision from the beginning that we would expand the portfolio. We'd eventually have more than tampons. We'd eventually have a portfolio where we, you know, had Lola specific IP for some of the products. But from from the beginning, we decided to launch with a private label product that was already in market elsewhere in a trusted market with trusted ingredients. And did you ever have a fear, even though you, it was something proven? I mean, it's a little scary to launch a company where you're dealing with medical stuff like what if there's a bad reaction or what if it doesn't work or what if the you know is was there any fear around that or you just kind of went in with confidence because you did your the right vetting we we certainly did the right vetting so you know we were as confident as we could be and we had a lot of trust in our supplier and in their testing process and in the history so we felt really good about what we were bringing to market but certainly i think you know, people starting businesses and medical devices in food, in anything that touches babies. Like there are a lot of different categories where you have to be really sure that you're in business with the right partners. Correct. And that takes a lot of bravery as well. So just vetting it is obviously so, so important. You also talked about another snag where you, during your second fundraiser, the lead never came through, which sounds crazy. Well, so let me tell you what happened. So, so basically I think there's this folklore and fundraising where you have this great idea, you have business traction. And so therefore somebody says, okay, I'm going to put down a big check. And then everyone else puts in small checks around it and you close your round and then you continue building your business. That's what we thought was the process too. And so we had raised this like very early round 20 checks 
into, you know, a million dollars was our first raise. And then when we wanted to raise a seed, which was, you know, a $3 million round, we thought, okay, this is the moment where somebody just comes in and writes a big check and then it's easy. And so we went and met with a handful of angel and early stage funds and none of them really clicked. It was, you know, we didn't really find our investor and all of, and we had a lot of traction, right? We'd been in market for three months. We had a, a lot of customers. We had really healthy repeat purchase. The brand was taking off. We had great press, like everything was going great. Just didn't have a lead investor. And all of our super early investors said, Hey, well, we'll continue. We'll keep investing in you. Let us put money into this next financing. And so we ended up raising a majority of our seed financing from the super early investors. And then eventually we found our partner, Lara Hippo, a fantastic firm in New York, and they wrote our lead check, but it happened to be the last one committed in the round. It was the biggest check, but it was a little bit of the opposite process that I think a lot of founder fundraisers go through, which was an interesting learning. Do you think it had anything to do with maybe a lot of the people you were talking to were men? Does that did that play a role in this? Maybe they didn't see or feel the importance of it or did that not really play a factor? I think that maybe in the early days it was a factor. It was it was that people we were pitching weren't our consumer. Also, I think I guess that probably is a big piece of it because you have to really see the vision and understand how it plays out and why it's a high impact business. So it's less about the fact that most investors aren't tampon users and more about the fact that most investors aren't the audience for a large platform for women's reproductive health, because that's harder to understand if you're not the audience. Got it. So let's talk about focus groups, because I know they had a huge impact on you and obviously listening to people and real struggles and finding those human truths is everything. So what were your biggest takeaways was there something that you learned that you didn't expect to learn from that process? The thing that I found most surprising was that nobody was embarrassed. I think we went into the focus groups thinking there's so much stigma in this industry. Nobody talks about these topics. People are going to be like, feel awkward. No one's going to want to go first. No one will want to share their story. And we showed up at focus groups with bottles of wine. We thought, okay. Everyone will have a few glasses, it'll get loose in the room, and then they'll tell us their stories. But from the minute we sat down, people were sharing, and we could barely end the focus groups. Everybody was excited to share. Nobody had ever been asked their first period story. No one had ever sat in a room of 10 or 15 people, friends, or even people they didn't know, and talked about these topics. And you know, the stories that people shared were hilarious. They were sad. They were personal. You know, there was just so much to unpack. And um, so all of that was great learning. We didn't totally realize it. And then the way that it manifested after we launched the brand is that people kept sharing. Everyone was open. People told their friends about us. They promoted the brand on social media publicly in front of all their friends of every gender. You know, it, it wasn't a secret. And that was interesting and learning for us. You know, you're almost making me think of, you know, there's almost like a formula to this. Let's think of all of the industries that don't like to have conversations about uncomfortable things and just go start having conversations and starting brands, right? There's almost something to that if you think about it. 
For sure. I think that stigmatized areas are prime for disruption. And, you know, our category was in particular because we had these large incumbent brands and consumers didn't relate to them and nobody talked about the subject matter. And there were things about it that made it extra challenging to disrupt as well. But I think, you know, it was prime for change. Is that a seed that you kind of take forward with other things that you do? Just kind of, you know, just like a learning you carry forward about how that creates attention around something you're doing when you you kind of get into a category that people haven't dealt with for a long time or don't have a lot of conversations around? Sure. I Yeah, I see it all the time. I think, you know, as I look back on the last maybe 10 or 15 years of, you know, direct-to-consumer disruption within CPG, it's very obviously a thread that you can look at an industry and see, you know, concentration among a few large companies that don't actually have loyalty or a relationship with the consumer and having an upstart or emerging brand come in and, you know, create that one-on-one dynamic and really get to know the consumer and do it in an authentic way. And I think that uh, that has been a very powerful way of changing things. I think I'm going to do a brainstorm tonight. Industries. Make a list. <laughs> I need honest conversations and see what brands we can create. I love it. Okay, so you, you also talk about that you wanted to own the period. And so from there, you expanded to products beyond tampons and pads and liners. And so tell us what else it expanded into. Sure. So the first couple of years were really about owning the period category. And so we filled out the period portfolio. One of the most high impact products we launched was actually a first period kit, which was the marriage of a handful of our products with a book for parents and for adolescents to really understand what was happening to their bodies at that moment and try to facilitate a conversation in homes. So once we really felt that we had made a big difference in periods, we looked across a woman's reproductive life and thought, you know, eventually we want to get to all of these different areas end to end, but where do we have the right to play? Where are we already in the conversation? And what are the, you know, the products that we feel like we can really be an expert in? And we started to explore sexual wellness. And that was you know, a category where we had a lot of pull from consumers, we had been receiving emails and texts and, you know, Instagram questions all the time, asking things like, you know, what is in the lubricant on a condom? And, you know, just a lot of questions about sexuality, and it felt like a natural progression, and also was applicable to our full audience. So we decided to go there next and thought, you know, this is great. We're, we're already a brand in a stigmatized category. This is a great topic to cover, especially since if you look at the spectrum of ages, there's stigma, you know, when you first heard, start having sex or even learning about sex, sex, sex ed curriculum is underdeveloped in most places and awkward for a lot of people. So maybe we could contribute on content there the same way we did a first period kit. Maybe there's something we can do in sex. And then all the way as you age, there are so many different challenges and undiscussed topics. Love that. You know, I'm embarrassed to tell you, like, for some reason, I don't, I've never asked my mom this, but she never, I didn't learn about my period from my mom. I learned at some weird class in school with some video that they played. And oh, sure. No one ever talks about it. <laughs> but like, how bizarre. I mean, I remember I made such a point. I have two teenage daughters, so I, I just didn't want them to go through. Because I remember watching that video probably like in sixth grade and then maybe a few years later it happening. And then just like all of my friends trying to educate me on what was going to happen or what to expect. And I was so like weirded out by the whole thing. So I love that, you know, you kind of took that on, you know, head on because I think there's probably still a lot of 
families that maybe aren't, don't know what to do or how to talk about it. So, you know, opening that conversation is obviously great. Yeah, it was very high impact. And, you know, the way we did it, we tried to do it in a similar way that we did periods where we had, you know, three hero products that we launched at once that were all, you know, products that a majority of people could use condoms, lubricant and wipes. And we did a lot of brand activations around it. We sponsored, you know, art focused on sexual wellness in Brooklyn. We did a hotline where people could dial in and talk to people about their sex lives. It was really a great way to open up a conversation. So smart. And also I understand that, you know, menopause is also a part of a part of this as well. Yeah, we, so you know, the goal is to eventually be there for her end to end. Right now, we don't have menopause specific products. But that's something you're going to, that the brand wants to expand to. We're already expanding as far as like content and community. We're kind of trying to support people through their full journey. But the, the eventual goal is to hopefully have products for her end to end. Yes. Got it. Okay. An- another question is who's Lola? Who is Lola? What a great question. Just to give you a sense, the brand name actually came from Jordana's husband's grandmother. Um, It was a name that was in the family. And we loved the name because it was so global and because it sounded like someone we'd want to be friends with. And so, you know, when we think of Lola, she's someone who is very informed about what she's doing. She's fun. She's cool. She's your older sister who, you know, knows the answers to things that maybe you don't know the answer to, or your friend, you know, in middle age, who's willing to talk to you about topics that you don't broach with everybody else and who's there for you no matter what. Love it. And what are you most, you know, proud of from this brand or this company that, you know, you helped build? I'm most proud, I think, I mean, there are so many things that I'm proud of. I'm most proud of opening up a conversation that wasn't really accessible before. It feels like we were part of a movement among brands that, you know, really were able to create a safe space for talking about sexual health and reproductive health and periods and topics that it felt like weren't discussed before. And I remember even before we launched, you know, searching on newyorktimes.com for periods and menstruation and tampon. I don't think I could find the word tampon ever, you know, before said in the newspaper and things have changed over the last decade. So I'm most proud of that. I'm also, you know, so proud of the brand that we built, I think, you know, from a product perspective, from a content perspective, from a community perspective, you know, Lola as a brand is really there for, you know, our consumers and our community in a way that I'm proud of. Love it. And obviously, you know, this was your baby and kind of you built and grew it. And that being said, you're now at BCG. So tell us about what, what is BCG and what are you doing now? What's next? Yes. So, so BCG is a global consulting firm. I am a managing director and partner within a group called X Ventures within BCGX. So I I think I probably said a lot of things that (laughs) need definition, but essentially BCGX is the tech build and design unit within BCG. And I'm within a group that stands up new businesses, new business units, services, and capabilities on behalf of big brands. So almost incubating new business units for bigger companies. Got it. So there are, are you looking for young Alex Friedman's ideas to come to you and to figure out how to make them come to life? I mean, hopefully I'll come up with many more of these ideas as I continue to age, but 
what we're doing right now is trying to understand our clients like biggest innovation needs over the next decade and make sure that we can start to put in place the building blocks so they can build big. Got it. So is it your job to come up with those innovations or do you look for outside people to bring ideas to you that then you bring to the larger companies or brands? It's more the former. So basically when we're working with consumer clients, which is mostly who I work with, we're partnering with them to innovate. So we're developing you know, growth concepts or we're validating existing ideas that exist within their walls and that they know about their own industries. And then we're working in partnership with them to stand up those concepts. We could be building a totally new business, a new direct-to-consumer channel within an existing business. We could be adding you know, new technology to their stack, or we could be doing a turnaround of an existing digital asset that um, maybe needs help accelerating. How fun. Kind it, of, it is really fun. Kind of sounds like a dream job. So you just your job is to just continue to push and innovate. Yeah, that's the goal. I love that. Are you allowed to talk about who you work with or not really? No. Okay, I figured. Thought I'd ask. Awesome. Well, I think you've answered all of my questions. So we always end with our rapid fire questions. Just quick, quippy answers from you. One line, um, if you don't mind, just first thing that comes to your mind. But otherwise, just love learning about all this. And, you know, I, I like to focus a little bit more in kind of like the psychology of what gets you there and how you kind of persevered and the bravery and all those things that you have to deal with in your brain to get to where you've been. So I really really loved hearing your story. So thank you for sharing all of that. Thank you. And I'm excited for rapid wire. All right, here we go. All right. So Alex, what keeps you up at night? My kids. <laughs> Good answer. If you could completely switch careers, do something very different than what you're doing today, non-related, what would it be? Well, I did just switch careers. <laughs> so, so I chose my choice, but if it was totally unrelated, maybe I'd be a journalist. Okay. I like that. So that means you like to write? I like to write and I like to learn about new things. And then I like to tie a bow and move on. Got it. What is the biggest challenge facing women today? Not having a seat at the table. Okay. What is your biggest strength? Being confident. That's a good one. Don't underestimate it. Um, what is your greatest weakness? I think maybe the opposite of that, imposter syndrome. Sometimes I'm really confident and sometimes I question it. Okay. And if you could have a skill set that, you know, that you weren't born with, that you just wish you were really, really good at, what would it be? It could be anything, even non-work related. I'm good at building things like businesses, but building things in real life with my hands, like when something arrives from Ikea and needs to be constructed, I can't do that. I, I wish I could do that. Oh my gosh, my husband and I have this conversation all the time. I, I do the thinking, he does the physical part. <laughs> I, can manage, I can manage anyone through constructing it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I totally relate. I love it. All right, I think the last question I have for you is, what does success mean to you? Success to me means feeling fulfilled, feeling happy about what I'm doing, trying to drive impact, leaving a legacy in some way, and feeling like I achieved what I set out to do. Fantastic. Well, Alex, you, you have answered all of my questions and I just really appreciate the time with you today. I know you're busy. So thank you. Thank you. And I can't wait for people to take a listen. Thank you. This has been great fun.